Hello and welcome to Candid, where we never settle for less than the truth. I'm your host, Jonathan Youssef. Each week, we'll tackle tough issues, answer your hard questions, and take a candid look at the Christian faith. Before we begin today's episode, today's conversation is a sensitive topic, and some of this conversation may not be suitable for young listeners. We encourage you to listen alone before sharing with younger ones. Now, on to our episode. The Equality Act is saying something that's not true. It's not only saying that people are something that they're not, it's saying that the answer is something that it isn't. It's a false gospel. I can't say this enough. Christians cannot sit this one out. The Equality Act is on the political horizon. Already passed in the House, and now, if passed in the Senate, this bill will literally affect everyone. What is it, and why should we care? As Christians, what does this mean for religious liberty? Can LGBTQ protections and religious liberties coexist? In today's episode of Candid Conversations, I welcome John Stone Street, president of the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, an organization committed to equipping Christians with a solid biblical worldview so they can navigate today's culture. Together, John and I discuss the Equality Act, a bill that, if passed, will amend the Civil Rights Act of 1964 to prohibit discrimination on the basis of sex, sexual orientation, and gender identity in practically every circumstance and situation. You might be thinking, what's wrong with that? Well, today we'll discuss the troubling implications this bill could have not only for Christians, but also for women children, educators, athletes, and the list goes on. Everyone is affected. Today's conversation is informative, tremendously eye-opening, and educational. Our hope is to encourage other Christians to not be shy or passive, but to be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, and to do so with gentleness and respect as 1 Peter 3.15 tells us. Now, let's get candid. Well, it is uh, my great honor and privilege to have John Stone Street join us on Candid Conversations. John, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be with you. Thanks so much for the opportunity. Pleasure. Well, John, for uh, maybe some of our people who may not be familiar with you or the Colson Center, you know, perhaps some of our listeners abroad, if you could just take a, a minute and introduce uh, yourself to us and the work that you guys are doing. Sure. Yeah. I head up the uh, the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, which is an organization committed to helping Christians think clearly about the culture as Christians. Uh, and that means a couple things. Number one is thinking with Christian categories, not embracing the false ideas that are often assumed uh, in our larger culture when it comes to important issues, but also not losing our minds uh, and panicking and just, you know, swinging wildly, um, you know, at everything in a game of kind of cultural whack-a-mole, but, you know, kind of understanding that as Christians, we uh, understand that Christ ultimately uh, is uh, risen from the dead. Uh, and that means, as our founder Chuck Colson used to love to, to, to repeat over and over, despair is a sin. And a lot of times Christian cultural witness is defined by despair or anger and as opposed to hope. And so, you know, the yeah. book of First Peter is still in there. We're supposed to be hopeful because Christ is That's risen. Right. So uh, we try to walk that line and help Christians as, as parents, pastors, uh, families, congregations uh, make sense of culture in a way that uh, reflects confidence that the Bible is true, uh, that we are made in the image of God, uh, that our sins have been paid for by Christ, that uh, the future is not up in the air. It's secure and all of that. And we do that because, you know, we're a, one of the legacy organizations of, of a guy named Chuck Colson, who lived a remarkable life of both bringing the gospel to a vulnerable population, which in his case were, you mm-hmm. know, incarcerated in their families and through prison fellowship ministries, but also cared deeply about a culture that was filling prisons faster than he could start Bible studies in prison. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that really led him to think about, okay, first of all, what's breaking in our culture? 
And secondly, where's the church? Because historically, the church is at its best running into the brokenness, not away from it. Yeah. Well, what great reminders uh, as we think about this, because you're right. I mean, it's so easy for us to despair. And uh, on that issue, we've brought you on today to talk about the Equality Act. Now, this is uh, House Resolution 5, I think, and it's on its way to the Senate. I wonder, um, you know, there will be a number of Christians who have heard a little bit about it. They have some partial information and certainly our international audience may not know hardly anything about it. So I wonder if you could kind of give us a little bit of a Reader's Digest summary of this bill. Yeah, the Reader's Digest, well, it's still going to be, you know, hopefully uh, uh, not as wordy as the bill itself. It's, (laughs) I mean, look, this is the mothership of all SOGI bills. Now, SOGI stands for Sexual Orientation and Gender Identity. And sexual orientation and gender identity bills or SOGI bills, what they want to do is essentially take those categories of sexual orientation and gender identity. So imagine the acronym LGBTQIA mm-hmm. and turn those into protected classes at, on the same par as race and legislation. Now, SOGI laws can be passed at the local level. Uh, my state of Colorado is fooling around with a bill right now that's going to that's going to do that. Uh, as well. And, and they can also be aimed at specific areas. So, for example, employment law or uh, let's say education policy or just kind of, you know, what a local business person, you know, can or cannot do or more accurately, which business can he turn down, you know, and all of that sort of stuff. So that's what SOGI laws do. The Equality Act essentially is the nuclear option of SOGI laws. It will essentially preempt all conversations at the local level because what it will do is take sexual orientation and gender identity and elevate it to race by retroactively putting it back into the Civil Rights Act. So the Civil Rights Act in 1964 obviously was attempting to right dramatic injustices that were prevalent across the United States that were doing everything from endangering the lives of ethnic minorities to making it impossible for them to participate in larger society. Right. So that was the need of federal legislation. So a big part of, for example, the Civil Rights Act is what we would call public accommodation. So think if you're an African-American family trying to drive from, you know, Georgia to Oregon in the early 60s and you're, you know, you're going through the southern U.S., through Texas and Alabama and Mississippi, you may not be able to find a place that will give you gas for your right. car or right. let you stay. So it literally was a way of ensuring that certain people who were being left out of larger American public life could have access to that American public life. What this does is it reads, first of all, sexual orientation and gender identity into the same categories as, as referring to classes of people like race does. And it also then equates the struggle of LGBTQ Americans with that of African Americans now, the other thing to know, too, and sorry, this is longer. You told me your Reader's Digest. <laughs> I've just read the law in the time that you've uh, taken there. Yeah, that's right. Well, you've got the wrong guest if you wanted that one. <laughs> the, uh, uh, the other thing is, is that this applies to all the different areas of culture that the civil rights and all of its various what's called title, Title Seven, Title Nine, Title Eleven. All of these things refer, right. these different uh, titles refer to different aspects of American life that civil rights law was supposed to apply to. So education, for example, or employment law, uh, public services and all of that. So this retroactively applies it to every area that the Civil Rights Act touches. Now, it doesn't mean if you don't believe it, you can't live in America. It just means that suddenly by the passage of the Equality Act, you are now put into the same historical category as um, the Ku Klux Klan, which still mm-hmm. exists, of course, but yeah. obviously is d- disinvited from any aspect of public life. Well, you've written some a number of articles on this, and um, you say, to be clear, you should only care about the Equality Act if you are a Christian or a person of faith or a woman or own a business or run a nonprofit or go to school or teach at a school or are a medical or mental health professional or especially are a female athlete or under the age of 18, or ever use a public restroom. I love that you ended with that one because now everyone's included in that. So, I mean, this is so far-reaching, it touches every single person. It's not just, uh, you know, corporate America or some narrow scope of people. Right. It's across the board. 
It's across the board. In fact, explicitly in the Equality Act, it says that uh, this applies to shelters. So think about yeah. homeless shelters or even in the case, and we've already had this actually be a live situation on the West Coast where a, a man in, uh, with facial hair and who was bleeding from an altercation earlier in the evening, dressed in a woman's nightgown, knocks on the door of a battered women's shelter middle of the night. <sighs> this happens at, it happened in Alaska and demanded that he be uh, basically Admitted. accommodated. Yeah. And of course, most battered women's shelters, you're dealing with, first of all, battered women, right? Yeah. In other words, people who have experienced incredible trauma. And secondly, typically, you're not talking about, you know, uh, individual suites at the Hampton Inn. You're talking right. about, you know, dormitory We're style or yeah. shared housing and maybe. And so now this specifically says in the Equality Act, in this version of the Equality Act, and we can talk in a second about the different versions, but this version specifically says that accommodation has to apply to gender identity in the case of shelters. So the shelter in Alaska, God bless them, refused and was sued even though they basically gave the guy, they tended to his cuts, took him to the hospital, gave him a meal, but because they would not let him stay the night, they were sued right. by the city or brought, brought, brought up on civil rights charges by the city. This would preempt that conversation. Yeah. In other words, the night manager trying to make a decision in the best interest of the vulnerable women that are already bedded down for the night. And this big burly lumberjack looking guy in a nightgown shows up. The decision's made. Yeah. This night manager cannot make that decision to protect those women. Right. That's what's astounding about this. It just exceeds, uh, you know, really common sense and, yeah. and application. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I mean, as you said, I mean, it's those women are in there because they've been battered by men. That's right. So by men. So, yeah, that's yeah. right. Okay. So this is to, in a sense, add lump together LGBTQIA into the Civil Rights Act of 1964. So that brings up a, an issue. We've kind of just touched on it, but but how do Christians articulate the distinction between race and sexual identity, sexual preference? Yeah. Well, I, I think that many Christians feel stumped because the, the L, the G, and the B part of right. the acronym advanced culturally and lesbian, gay, bisexual. In other words, talking about the sexual orientation part of this yes. advanced largely in culture with the narrative born this way. Right. Um, there was even right. a Lady Gaga song, you know, that settled it. Um, what's interesting, though, is if you go back to early writings of leaders of that movement, they actually express that the big conversation is between is sexual orientation, a product of nurture or of nature. Right. And at the time, they admit uh, there's a remarkable book in which some leaders trying to set an agenda for the 90s. So that tells you how far back this is. Book was written in 1989. They set mm. the agenda for the 90s and they say, look, we all indication seems to say it's probably a mix. There's probably some inherent attractions that are part of you know, some biological determinants. But it's largely also nurture in terms of learning that this stuff is OK and that it can be pursued and it gives you the opportunity. So, in other words, the answer is both. But born this way will serve our purposes more. So therefore, uh, let's use that. And so it became a mantra, even though, you know, scientifically it was always questionable. But now it's interesting. If you really pay close attention, you will rarely hear the born this way narrative proclaimed by people who are advancing the larger agenda. And the reason is, is because while the born this way narrative serves the L, the G and the B, it doesn't serve the T. Right. Mm, the LG, the right. B is I was born this way. I can't change. The T is I was born this way. After and I the have fact. To yeah. Right. Um, and so that's one of the ways to tell the difference between the uh, sexual orientation and gender identity and race. The idea of immutability, the idea mm. of, you know, being black, for example, or being white is not something that you do. It's something that's inherent to who you are as you do whatever you do. Having an attraction might be something inherent, but actually, uh, for example, choosing to marry someone of the same gender or go through artificial reproductive technologies in order to hijack biology so you can procreate or uh, even, you know, basically seeking to express gender in some sort of way. Even the whole transgender thing when it comes to kids is, is a fascinating example mm-hmm. of this. I mean, look. How many decades has it been that we've been told that gender stereotypes are harmful? Are we, are we in the fourth or fifth decade of this now? 
I mean, it's been a while, <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. So, but, but how do you know, for example, if a child is transgender? Well, this is actually part of the sort of curriculum that would be not only encouraged, but mandated in something like the Equality Act. And for any school that has any sort of government funding or wants accreditation, uh, and that's the other threat of the Equality Act. It's not just basically if you get government funds, it's whether you have access to the public, essentially. Mm-hmm. But anyway, going back, um, you know, how do you know if your child is struggling with gender dysphoria? You have a girl that plays with trucks. You have a boy that plays with dolls or likes pink or likes to play soccer. And you think that's gender stereotypes. You just told us for yeah. four decades that gender stereotypes yeah. are, d- don't mean anything. And now you say that's how we know that a little girl who's six years mm. old is born in the wrong body. So that's the stark difference. The other point of distinction between sexual orientation, gender identity, and racial categories, at least in terms of the Equality Act, has to do with the level of discrimination and the level of oppression. The Civil Rights Act was not passed in 1964 because discrimination existed. It's because discrimination was so widespread and so deeply embedded in the national narrative that participation in life would not be possible without legislative action. Hmm. When the couple from New Hampshire showed up at Jack Phillips store in Aurora, Colorado, Jack's a friend of mine just up the street at Masterpiece Cake Shop. And they said, hey, would you bake us a same-sex wedding cake? By the way, this was back in uh, 2000, uh, whenever, before there were same-sex weddings in Colorado. That's the ridiculous part of this whole story. (laughs) And Jack said, no, they literally could have walked out of that door and, and within gone next 10 door. minutes, yeah. Been, yeah, that's right, been in a number of other bakeries. There's not an issue of public accommodation. There's not an issue of being unable to secure employment or being able to secure housing or to secure public services. So that's the other big distinction between the two categories. I really have two things here. I'll just start with one and then the other. And, and you, you've kind of raised it now, which is sort of this narrative of oppressed and oppressor. At what point do we reach an end? It's it's an infinite number of oppressed people groups to the point where eventually we will all be able to categorize ourselves as oppressed. How does that kind of fit in with this? Like, you know, you've kind of touched on this, that it's uh, the legislation that was required for 1964 it doesn't fit within the current category, but there are people that still feel this oppressive, you know, being told no from a baker. Uh, So so how does that, all that kind of like tie in together with that narrative of of oppressed and oppressor? Because they are genuine, you know, those are realities. Right. Right. Yeah. Oppression and and oppressors actually exist. Uh, Do you mind if I get a little nerdy here? Sure, please. Okay. So the Marxist category of oppress and oppressor, basically ends in a basically a will to power. Uh, Frederick Nietzsche on a philosophical level said the same thing, right? When there is no God, it's nothing but power. And so a lot of the postmodernists borrow both from Nietzsche's category that there's no givens in in, in life, there's just bias. And the one who has power, um, their bias wins. There's no such thing as truth, only interpretation. And whose interpretation wins is power. I mean, all this comes from these thought leaders. And by the way, the critical theory that is defining our conversation about oppressions and oppressors right now is a direct kind of descendant of a postmodern view in which everything should be categorized uh, by who are the powerful in culture and who is not, that there's no inherent truth to the world. There's only perspectives and that the perspectives of the powerful get privileged and they actually should be, uh, you know, deplatformed and deprivileged and other positions should be privileged and so on. What the people who have borrowed these ideas for their purposes today forget is that the one that was honest about this was Frederick Nietzsche, who said this just ends in a new will to power. Right. So here's the case in point, right? One of the earlier groups that claimed oppression and had a dark, you know, decent argument were obviously the feminist. The feminists who said men are imposing their experience on us, making us serve their experience. Men don't really understand the, you know, the female experience. And, you know, some of it was overblown and some of it was, you know, dead on because women were largely sure. being left out of public life in all kinds of different ways. These same women who cried oppression mm-hmm. are now facing themselves yeah. directly at odds with a group that has gone <laughs> right. to cultural power that are saying that men can be trapped in a women's, that men can fully experience a woman and own it with all the rights and privileges thereunto. So what happens? 
well, it doesn't matter who has the better argument. It doesn't matter right. who has the you know longer track record of being oppressed. It just matters, you know, who basically has the power of the cultural narrative. And uh, this is a remarkable place, especially when you think about like even I think sex or arguments around sexual orientation were wrong. You know, I, I think there were flaws. The, the attempt was at least made to make arguments about sexual orientation. Right. Gender identity has hijacked the entire privilege movement. They haven't made an argument. There's not an argument to be made. And when someone makes an argument against, then the activists cry harm and foul. So that's what's so interesting about this is that it's completely devolved into a power play. There's no givens. There's no norms. There's no right and wrong. Well, we see that with J.K. Rowling's, uh, you know, essentially (laughs) being canceled by all her former cast, you know, for the Harry Potter series. You know, here's here's someone who's fought so long and hard for for feminism. And as you said, you know, breaking up like real genuine issues that are realities. And now, you know, a man can win the women's sporting event. That's right. How does that actually elevate women? All all it does is actually put women back down. There's a, a, a male, biological male MMA fighter mixed martial arts, who so far in most of his fights against women have broken their skulls. There reaches a point of insanity, but you know, and I don't want to just say insanity, like in a derogatory way. Legitimately. Yeah, no, it is. It's observably the Romans one narrative Mm. where if you deny the creator you, in a sense, have to redefine the creation. You know, first of all, it's an object of worship. And and suddenly, you know, you just kind of put it against its any sort of purposes. And, and you don't have to be a Christian to think that men and women have biological reality, right. Right? right? You have to be at a special place in culture to say otherwise. You know, when the HB2, the, the bathroom bill in North Carolina, for example, was mm. was being argued, a child psychologist at Duke University said, and I, I almost quote, that when it comes to gender, chromosomes, hormones, external genitalia, and internal reproductive systems are not scientific ways of, of determining it. They're unscientific. It's a, it, it's a remarkable place for the church to be. And I, it I, really know, is. I've appreciated you guys for so long, Church of the I used to live outside of Atlanta and drove yeah. by your beautiful church and all that. And I appreciate your commitment to saying this because, you know, look, in the 20th century, we spent so much time, you know, defending the truthfulness of Christianity against uh, materialism, right? Yeah. Against claims yeah. that Christianity was too esoteric, that the, you know, the metaphysical world didn't exist, that you Christians have your heads in the clouds, you're thinking about fairy tales, we're dealing with reality. And, and now we find ourselves in a strange position. We're the ones going, look, you have parts and they matter, you know? Yeah. Um, and yeah. even just the other day, Richard Dawkins, one of the new atheists, mm-hmm. really the spokesperson, yeah. pushed back on a, on a new book talking about the the politics and the the ideology kind of driving uh, the study of sex and biology by saying, look, you know, this is not happening scientifically. And of course he got in trouble for not being woke too. Um, yeah, so of course. we're not woke enough, man. That's it. Yeah. He said something about um, essentially the benefit of the Christian community in the greater world is serving a good purpose. Someone's right. got to bring this to light, and it seems to be them. It's it's uh, it is a bit strange. Now we've now brought up the issue of of this in relation to the church, and the argument I hear now is, you know, people don't want to be on the wrong side of history. Uh, that the church, you know, got the slavery issue wrong, and this does tie in a little bit to what we talked about earlier about the distinction between race and sexual preference, sexual identity. But the narrative that's coming through to churches now is that you don't want to be on the wrong side of history. A century ago, the church was getting—I mean, not, not even that long ago—the uh, church was getting slavery wrong. Is this the next sort of slavery issue? Is what's being presented in churches? How do we helpfully respond to attacks like that? Yeah, well, there's no such thing as the wrong side of history because no one knows where history is going to go. That's, <laughs> that's, a, right. that's a ridiculous statement. There's only the wrong side of, of, of right. 
And it's so important to keep that straight. Secondly, the church also not only opposed the liberation of the slaves, uh, the church also opposed child sacrifice. Were they on the wrong side of history or the right side of history back then? <laughs> right. Who knows? We might be getting close to that one, too. <laughs> well, that's right. I mean, the ch- and I think we are. By the way, let's come back to that <laughs> yeah. because we are. No, but really? The, yeah, the church has been on, on sides of all issues. And some of them were right and some of them were wrong. Yeah. But it's also, what do we mean that the church was on the wrong side of the slavery issue? Do we mean that some Christians were? Well, yeah, no. some secularists were too. Some politicians were too. Some scientists were too. There were plenty of secular, uh, non-religious scientists who argued on a Darwinian basis. And by the way, some of them late into the right. 20th century after the church already made up its mind, you know, about uh, the racial thing. I mean, look, the eugenics movement at the beginning of the 20th century uh, in which people were judged on animal characteristics and abilities – uh, and therefore, also, mm. we're talking about, you know, breeding away the unfit, getting rid of the unworthy eaters. Uh, and that, that stuff wasn't birthed out of Christianity. That was birthed out of atheism. That was birthed out of scientific, you know, progress. So the whole narrative is, is, is just wrong. And it's historically, factually wrong. And by the way, the first people in history at least according to Rodney Stark, the historian, other than a random Jewish sect in the middle of the Essene desert, you know, back in the second century, the first group of people in history to even imagine that slavery was not a normal part of human existence, because it was. Hmm. It was from the beginning all the way up until recently. The first people to ever imagine it was the church. So maybe the church actually got that one right, right? And some Christians got it wrong like everything else. Yeah. I want to read you a quote. Uh, This is from Adam Kinzinger, who's a Republican representative from Illinois, and he said in a press release, without question, we need to provide protections for LGBTQ Americans and at the same time defend religious liberties. My question is, can protections for LGBTQ and a defense of religious liberties coexist? Um, Well, they can, but it requires that we define our terms sure. carefully and rightly. Uh, I just got a, a note from a listener who uh, had written their state senator who is fully in support of the Equality Act and said, well, the Equality Act actually explicitly protects religious liberty. And he said, what would you say to this? And I said, she's lying. It's just flat out not true. <laughs> yeah. There's nothing true about right. it. In other words, un- unless the best, most charitable reading on that is by defining religious liberty down to what Chuck Colson called freedom of worship, which is, by the way, what basically mm. every other nation in the world has, including the worst persecutors. Because freedom of worship is essentially you have the right to think whatever you want in the privacy of your own head, maybe your own home, maybe your own house of worship and in your own heart. But you can't bring it into the public square. Uh, that's not the freedom of religion or the freedom of conscience, which allows you to order your life, including your work, your business, your family life, your involvement in this in, in the public square, how you vote, how you act, you know are activist or whatever. Um, you know, religious liberty wasn't just something that you could put into a corner in the American way of understanding it. It was something determinative. So what's happened now is those who pit sexual freedoms against religious liberty are basically saying that to be religious is a matter of personal private preference. To be sexual is who you are. Hmm. And so this is a question of identity. Yeah. Uh, in other words, to, to have a conscience, to order your beliefs, has long been understood this is who we are as humans. That Not only that we exist, but we think about existing. We're different than the animals. We don't just think about where we're going to find our next meal and next nap and next mate. We actually think about why we're here and why the world is the way that it is and how we can make it better. And our sexuality was always considered behavior until just recently. And so it really is a, a fundamental battle over anthropology. What does it mean to be a human person? And who gets to decide this? Um, Now, for this uh, Arizona state senator to say that the the Equality Act advances religious liberty is to say that religious liberty actually is freedom of worship. And the actual definition of religious liberty about ordering our public lives is actually theocracy. So it's bad. So in other words, it's a redefinition of terms. And I think we have to define the term. So, for example, is the right of someone to self-identify as gay 
or bisexual or transgender, does that include the right to demand that everyone else agree with that? Right. Mm-hmm. That, that Those are two different things. Right. These distinctions aren't being made in this conversation. Uh, does the right of someone to pursue uh, gender reassignment surgery or hormone treatment for their gender dysphoria with medical professionals willing to join, is that the same as forcing a medical professional to provide those services as a basic mm. you know, service of human rights? So the whole conversation about LGBT in a way that race never did confuses self-proclaimed identity with behavior. And it just always has. Now we come back to sacrificing of children. And, yeah, let's do that. Uh, you know, as you know, I mean, in Scotland, they're pushing through legislation about kids self-determining themselves a particular gender, and they remove the parents from the equation. Essentially, the state can provide hormone blockers and whatever it may be to allow that. I mean, uh, honestly, like it, it makes me feel nauseous, the right. thought that my son could be say that, and the state would make that decision apart from his parents. Um, that's the trajectory that a lot of this will take, I think. And you've kind of mentioned there are different versions of this bill. I don't assume any of that's in there. But, I mean, could that be something that we see down the track, lot, like just the n- natural flow of logic from them? Well, if you live in California, you're already seeing that. That's a reality that in California school systems – a student over the, I think it's the age of 12 is the cutoff, can actually go to the nurse during school hours and express gender dysphoria and the school is required to help them without notifying the parents. So that actually exists in the United States. And that's why I said these SOGI laws take various forms and they go from local to this nuclear option, which is the Equality Act. In California, you know, a 13-year-old can go to Planned Parenthood and get an abortion, yeah. you know, without parental notification. So to say that is that possible is to say that it's here in some parts of the United States. And it depends on what you mean. I mean, there's plenty of um, uh, it may not involve prescribing, but there's plenty of school districts in the United States where students cannot opt out of sex education when it includes certain components. Oh, if they're actually talking about how to have sex, then the student can bail out. But if they're talking about the spectrum of gender identities, then no, that's a required thing. Mm-hmm. You have right. teachers saying, I have to teach your, your kids. I mean, it, the, the parental rights part of this is really uh, as, as, astonishing. Um, so I guess my point is, is that in, in, in some ways that it's already here, the Equality Act would remove the debate and then put any resistance on the other side of refer legislation. So that's why this is the nuclear option. When I say that there are different versions, what I mean is that there are different versions of the Equality Act that have been uh, you know, proposed uh, right. in different legislative contexts for 25 years. And most of the time they didn't have a prayer. The thing about this year, and I, I always worry because we talk about the Equality Act year after year, and I don't want people to think we're crying wolf. What I want people to realize is it's a tsunami and, and we're on the shore yelling, it's getting closer. And this yeah. is the version that is by far the most extreme and is really close to passing. I don't think it's going to pass unless right. uh, the Democratic Party ends the filibuster and then it's all bets off. But So for people who d- don't remember their civics lesson, it's 60 votes Right. To pass in the Senate. Yeah. And it's basically, you know, th- this would take it down to basically, you know, 50-50 with, you know, uh, the vice president able to just, you know, call it a day. So that's the the challenge here if the filibuster is removed, uh, is that it would be really hard even with a narrow the narrow majority that the Democratic Party does have in the Senate to hold back any sort of legislation, especially kind of game-changing defining legislation is this. Although it is unclear whether represent, uh, Senator Manchin from West Virginia would go along with this. He's, the, he's kind of a wild card on this. But there's also the Susan Collinses and you know some of the Republican senators that have been squishy on this. Now, yeah. my understanding is, is that Senator Collins is, is not going to vote for this version of the Equality Act. She thinks it goes too far. So there's that. So, it, But it's, it's just we're just talking about small margins here. That's what the challenge mm. is. Mm. And we're talking about state level pushes that uh, or local uh, jurisdictions passing ordinances uh, that could have the same effect in some context. So to know what's behind this is really important, but I want to go to this idea of child sacrifice. If I can, can I I do that? Yeah, please. Because I have a struggle at times where churches will say to me, it's too political and I don't want to get involved in politics. 
And uh, first of all, I think about Amy Carmichael and William Wilberforce and some of the great people who advanced the gospel in pagan societies and how many of them saw their work to defend children. Amy Carmichael freeing the temple prostitutes and William Wilberforce uh, bringing into his work on public morality child labor laws and things like that, that they didn't think that this was an option. You know, for them, this was like following Jesus' command to not offend one of these little ones and get a millstone tied around your neck. And I think about this, and we are in the late stages of the sexual revolution, and the sexual revolution advanced on a couple ideas, but really advanced on a, on a lie. Every stage of the sexual revolution that made changes to marriage, to parenting, to family, to sexuality, we always heard this, the kids will be fine. You know, no fault divorce. Ah, the kids will be fine. After all, don't you think they want happy parents, you know, instead of married parents and, you know, um, intentionally single parents, all the kids will be fine. A mom is just as loving as a dad, as if a mom can be just as loving as a mom and a dad. Well, the kids will be fine. You know, kids don't need a mom and a dad. They just need two loving parents. So two moms and two dads can be and the fact of the matter is all the research tells us the kids aren't fine. The kids aren't fine at all. We can talk about yeah. all kinds of indications culturally that the kids aren't fine without ever pointing to the morality of Scripture. And this is the ultimate thing where we're like, oh, look, the kids will be fine. We'll put them on puberty blockers. We'll take six-year-olds and stunt their growth. We'll give little girls testosterone so that their genitalia uh, is is actually physically altered and that their long-term reproductive prospects are compromised and, and they'll be fine. I mean, listen, every generation of Christians has seen their witness in public culture. Think of the earliest Christians that would go out into the wilderness and pick up these little kids that were abandoned to die by exposure and bring them into their homes. This is what Christians have always done. If the church... If the church does not rally around, and I'm not talking, because I'm not talking about just like this moral posturing that we're right and you're wrong and you're perverts and we're not. Good heavens, we have seen enough to disavow mm. ourselves of that yeah, notion sure. recently, right? Yeah. What I'm saying is, is that to be Christian in the world for every generation of the church that we know of has involved protecting children. So if we're not going to protect these children from these ideas and these policies and these laws that compromise their humanity and put their best interest subservient to adult sexual desires, Hmm. then we're out of step with church history. Yeah. But I think it's important because I I hear too many people talk about this on one of, with one of two mistakes. One is, is that, you know, this is a legislative issue. I don't want to get involved or we're going to get involved and stop this legislation and therefore we're going to win. Listen, the Equality Act is downstream from the culture, not upstream. The Equality Act is reflecting deeper things in culture that are largely taken for granted in the corporate space, certainly in the entertainment space, the artistic space, the education space. So we're not going to win to stop this. Stopping this legislation is like the least we can do. It's not really a win. Right. And so people say, well, why should we stand up for this? And why shouldn't we just kind of go along with it? And that is a a really important thing to get to the heart of, which is at the end of the day, not only is to fail to resist the Equality Act, the failure to support children, but some people even want us to support the Equality Act because, you know, Jesus was nice and all that, or some compromised version of the Equality Act, like fairness for all. And the problem with those things is, and this is really important, any legislation that says that there is a category of what it means to be human defined by our sexual uh, desires or our self-autonomy over our biological createdness. That was a lot of syllables, but you know what I mean? Our our willingness to say, this is who I am despite what, what the body God's given me, is to say something that's not true. And I'm with Rod Dreher on this. Rod's just written a book called Live Not By Lies. It's a, yes. it's a, it's a remarkable book. I don't know if you've had him on the podcast, but you should. But Not yet, the yeah. Quotes taken, yeah, the quote's taken from Alexander Solzhenitsyn, 
one of the last speeches. And he's like, look, at the very least, at the very least, he's like, you know, he's talking to Russian dissonance. He's like, you don't have to fight every battle or show up at every protest, but good heavens, don't you be forced to say something that's not true. Mm. The Equality Act is saying something that's not true. It's not only saying that people are something that they're not. It's saying that the answer is something that it isn't. It's a false gospel. I can't say this enough. Christians cannot sit this one out. So what does that look like? You're right. I mean, this this essentially boils down to a battle over truth. Right. Is there absolute truth and what is it? And And that's really kind of where the Christians come in and put their hand up and say – We've got a response. Yeah. You know, John, it's it's such a massive issue, and I probably have used that phrase in every podcast I've used. But, I mean, in all honesty, this affects the future, the present, the future yeah. of the church, the future of uh, you know citizens of lots of different countries. Uh, I mean, it's a trajectory issue. What do I do now? You know? Yeah. I'm not going to sit it out, but I, I need to like give help with game plan type things. That's right. Yeah. And I, and I get that. And I, I want to start with something that's going to sound not pragmatic or practical, but it is. It's actually necessary. I loved um, Neil Planiga's book years ago on sin, uh, mm-hmm. which was called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, in which he kind of talked about sin. Yeah. Not because I love to talk about sin, but because it helped me understand the nature of sin better. Yeah. And he says something in there that's really important, and it applies here. He says that whenever we talk about sin— We need to talk about sin and evil as if it's a real foe, because it is. He said, but as a Christian, we have to also talk about it as if it's a defeated foe, because Mm. it is. Yeah. Listen, when the early Christians said Christ is risen, they weren't saying, oh, I I think Jesus rose from the dead. They were making a public proclamation in a cultural moment that would think they were crazy for saying it. This was a barbaric yelp of public statement. Uh, the same thing when they said this, you know, Jesus is Lord, you know, for you and I to say it, it's usually like, well, I think Jesus is Lord of my life. Well, I hope he is. But regardless of whether you think it or not, it's a statement of objective reality, yeah. the follower of Christ. And so whenever we talk about these things that seem overwhelming in the moment, we have to back ourselves back into, listen, yeah, these are tough days. You know what? It's also tough days for our Nigerian brothers and sisters yeah. facing Fulani militants. Yeah. And it's also tough days for, and name all the people in history that have had those tough days and say, well, this is ours. And you know what's true? Christ is risen from the dead. Yeah. And so we take our stand, not because we're going to win this at this one, but because Christ is risen and Christ is Lord and we're going to win that way. So that's the first thing. And it it seems esoteric and maybe nebulous because it is, but it also is so true. And I think so crucial when things get a little bit up. Yeah, you got to start there, right? Because it goes to identity, Um, which we talked about earlier. We read about the martyrs that went off to their death celebrating the privilege that God had given them to be crucified or killed or stoned in his name. We just don't have anything close to that. In other words, we're thinking about, on one hand, I'll get made fun of, or two, how can I win? What if the win is losing? Yeah. What if we are the voices? It's like Temelicus, right, who runs out into the middle of the um, uh, of the gladiator fights, and they, you know, he tries to stop it, and they kill him. He loses. Hmm. But you know what happened? The gladiator fight stopped. Hmm. What, what if, you know, we have to realize that God's writing this story of history uh, and we have the privilege of joining in with this moment. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't be strategic. And that's actually yeah. point two. Yeah. And this is a point that I think many people miss and it drives them to silence. Right. In fact, I think it's far more common that people disagree with this and go quiet than that they just say, well, I'm going to go along with it. The silence is deadly, right? Um, anyway, so I think the thought there is I don't know what to say. So right. therefore. I won't say anything. I won't say anything. And, and even worse than that, I hear this from students. I don't know if you do. If you ever hear this from the young people when they walk away, you, you, you know, there's been these high profile, you know, deconversions in which people have said, you know, um, I, I started to wonder how could evil exist if there's a good yeah. God? And yeah. I couldn't figure it out. So I left the faith. And you think, I can point you without even thinking to 15 books that answer that question. In fact, they take that question, make it even more challenging, and then answer it. In other words, 
this is the tragedy of this. When I have young yes. people tell me all the time, I've been in church my whole life. I've never heard anyone deal with this question, so there must not be an answer. Mm. Now, That's now a look, failure on the church's part. I, look, I, I don't want to be negative here because pastors have a really, really, really hard job. But I've long yeah. admired your dad's courage and so on. And, uh, and, and, you know, I'm not just saying that. I mean, there's a number of people. Chuck Colson worked with so many of them. And, of course, yeah. Yeah. Th- so there are people who did this. But this is what's happening right now on the issue of gender and sexuality. The church isn't talking about it. And therefore, young people, and by the way, even their parents, are getting all of their information from somebody else. Yeah. And by the way, I also left to conclude the church has nothing to say. So listen, if you're hearing this and your church isn't bringing this to you, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, but I'm just going to tell you, this is the golden age of answers. If there's a tough question that is challenged, the Christian viewpoint on anything, if there's a tough question that you've heard from a skeptic or a cynic or a pro, you know someone who's progressive uh, and, and compromising biblical truth or whatever, it has been dealt with. The answer is there. Yeah. You just got to go find it. And there are, that's one of the missions that our website has is to take these really smart people who wrestle with these questions and make it very understandable for everybody else. Because the answers are literally, they go to our website, whatwouldyousay.org. We've dealt with so many of these questions in a video format, whatwouldyousay.org. Hmm. So number one, Christ is risen. Number two, don't sit this one out. Number three, learn how to answer these questions. Learn how to make a case. If you don't know how to make the case, it's not because the case isn't there to be made. It's because you haven't learned how to make the case. So learn how to make the case. And number four, teach your own children the image of God. Yeah. Um, The image of God is a matter of church trivia. Like you go from church to church to church, you know, and if you stood up and said, hey, everybody, humans are made and everyone would say in the image of God. But then you'd say, what is the image of God? And nobody knows. (laughs) That's right. Um, The unimportant details. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. So listen, but the challenge with that is, is uh, the church, if it is talking about sexuality, is talking about it in terms of morality. Hmm. Which is okay because there are certainly moral dynamics of sexuality. But what we miss is the larger culture has been talking about sexuality in terms of anthropology and identity for decades. Yeah. And the moral norms when it comes to sex are not roots of the issue. They're fruits of the issue. In other words, what we decide it means to be human. Like, you know, no one like morally condemns a, uh, a lion for polygamy, right? <laughs> right. Be- because the question isn't, is the lion committing polygamy? The question is, is the lion's morality, you know, different because he's a lion, right? I mean, this, sorry, that was the stupidest illustration of this whole podcast. It's helpful, though, you know, right? Sometimes you, the simple ones help. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, you know, no, no one, you know, criticizes a dog for, a, you know, unfaithfulness, you know, in terms of, you know, he has the girlfriend next door, but then if he has an opportunity, you know, to mate with – Although this, I don't know. I, the trajectory of our culture may be heading in that way. <laughs> <laughs> we say that half-joking. Hey, man, my, my – uh, a uh, good friend of mine went up to before COVID went up to the uh, the gate at the airport, and he looked around, and there was a child on a leash and a dog in a stroller, and he was like, "That's it. <laughs> this is what I knew." This is the days over. we live in. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! But no, you're right. But humans are different types of creatures, so therefore our morality flows from who we are. Uh, you know, T.S. Eliot wrote, before we know what to do with something, and, and I'm paraphrasing this, before we know what to do with something, we need to know what something is for. And you need to know who you are and what you're for before you know what you can and can't do. So we're having to do this, don't right. do that. And the church has lost on what it means to be human. But here's the upside. And this is the last part of my answer. Uh, I don't know what number I'm on now, five or six, but you know, um, which is uh, what else can we do? And that is um, when we are talking about sexuality, identity, marriage, family, all that sort of stuff. It's not like God just randomly thought, you know, let's see, this is right. This is wrong. You know, in other words, we're not yeah, talking arbitrary about arbitrary rules or something. Yeah, no, that's right. We're actually talking about rules that directly connect with the way the world actually is. Well, and who God but, is and who God is. Right. But, but I think sometimes we feel like the cultures run away from us and we forget that we play on home field advantage. In other words, you might talk to a person who's absolutely convinced that the single most defining characteristic about them is their sexual inclination. But you know who you're really talking to? Someone who was made in the image and likeness of God. Yeah. 
you might find yourself in the midst of a culture that is just denying biological and moral realities left and right. But the only world we've ever lived in is one with biological and moral realities. I mean, you know, the other way to say this is that gravity always wins. There's going to reach a point in our culture where there's going to be a collapse. And this happened before in church history. This is important. Mm. This happened before in church history where, you know, the the historical narrative, as you know, is, is that the pagans were having all this sexual fun and the Christians came in and ruined it all with their prudishness. <laughs> right. Uh, there's actually some remarkable new research, and I don't have the name off the top of my head, but there's, uh, this is being uh, worked on now even. But where the arguments being made that the ancient world was so sexually brutal on women and children that the idea of protecting marriage, protecting sexuality within marriage and withholding it and protecting children's innocence was seen as a life-giving, innovative idea. Mm. In other words, it was good news. I think we feel like in the sexual stuff, we're just saying, no, 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 no. And what we're Christians actually have is something that's actually not only true, but good. Yeah. And we're going to find that be more stark. It's going to be painful for here and now. We still want to take our place in whatever part of the story God has. But, but we do have reality and truth on our side. Amen to that. Well, John Stone Street... Uh, we've covered quite a lot, and um, I do appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. We do have uh, a final little segment, and that's uh, our final question is, you're entering in heaven. What's the first question you ask? <laughs> I think that, that you know there are moments where the, the, the better uh, response is, is to commit to silence, even if you want to say a whole lot, and that's probably going to be one of those moments. Um, I, I, you know, there, there's plenty of why questions, but there's, there's also, I guess the, um, wonderful people that God has blessed my life with from the beginning into the end. And I know that there's a reunion aspect of heaven that can go th- both get overplayed and underplayed. But, um, there are some people who just were faithful in my life that I just really am looking forward to see again. And one of them was a 97-year-old woman, you know, that I met when I was mm-hmm. in high school. Mm-hmm. Changed my life. Uh, certainly my two grandfathers are going to be in that category. Chuck Colson, be good to see him again. Yeah. So uh, yeah. there's that aspect of it that, you know, I'm looking forward to as well. What a great thought as we wrap up. John Stone Street, Colson Center, thank you so much for taking the time to have a candid conversation with us. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much. And it is a podcast from Leading the Way with Dr. Michael Youssef. Don't forget to connect with our social media pages on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And subscribe to Candid Conversations on your favorite podcast platform so that you never miss an episode. While there, please leave a review and send us a screenshot of that review to candid at ltw.org. It helps people find us, and we will send you a free copy of Dad's latest book, Hope for this present crisis. As always, thank you for listening to and sharing this episode.